Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I don't talk about that in the general public. (laughs) No one Who do you talk talk about it with? (laughs) Just myself. (laughs) You you don't have, like, a a group, like a fan, (laughs) a fan group? My Fifty Shades of Grey group. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The Greys. But we can only keep, you. we can only keep fifty of us in at a time. <laughs> if a new person wants to join, we have to kick someone out. That's right. And so, For, are all of you? You just go by your first name and then the Mr. name Mr. Gray. Gray. So Andy yeah. Gray and I just go Bob. by Mr. Gray. <laughs> Bob Gray. <laughs> Bruce Gray, Steve Gray, they're all there. Yep. Ironically, Gray. no Christians. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know that. Yeah. Wow. IMDb. IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> Was that book big in your house? Uh, did your, no. did your wife did your wife read that book? She's a nope. reader. She is. She but knows that's how to like... read. <laughs> she has read before. <laughs> that's I think, I don't know, that's one that somehow we all managed to completely avoid, which I think is a good thing. You think? I think, I think right? So. I think so. I think... Uh, Honestly, I know so little about it. I, I don't know if it's fair to say it's a good thing or it's a bad thing. Cause I know, I you have to leave that question there, because yeah. I, I don't really know. I love that there are people who love it. But let, they can have that. How about that? Is that fair? Let them. Let them let them have their suburban porn. <laughs> oh dear! Unless it's on Criterion, I'm not gonna watch it. <laughs> you flim snob. <laughs> uh, how um, are you this week? Are you feeling strong? Is your kung fu strong? Like, <laughs> uh, my kung fu is weak. It's it's oh, been oh no. Exhausting. It's just a tiring week. And then, you know, I went and did this thing, which uh, just made my day a mess. What 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 did you do? Well, my phone was acting up. So I, I restored it. And, you know, I didn't think it would be that difficult of a thing to deal with. but It's difficult. And, well, I did it last night. And, you know, I, I had backed it up before. And I was like, okay, I've got a backup. You know, I... I was ready and so i i hit the restore and then it takes forever so i went to bed and i came and looked in the morning and it had somewhere in the middle of the night decided it wasn't going to work and so but you were asleep yeah but i didn't know that so it so my phone was basically like just a little piece of useless uh it's like a brick basically (laughs) and so (laughs) that's what they call it yeah pretty much that is what they call it and so I, uh, I I quickly hit restore again, just like the just backup or restore from my backup to see if it would at least be done before I left for work. And I came in as I was leaving, and it looked fine. Everything seemed to be there. Um, and so I unplugged it, and I was leaving for work. And I looked at it, and I realized that 
somehow my computer had decided that it wasn't going to actually recognize it with my carrier or anything. So it wasn't, it still wasn't a phone. I had no connection to the outside world through it. All my apps theoretically were there, but none of them would actually work because I couldn't get internet connection. I just couldn't do anything. It was a mess. And yeah, so, and then you're disconnected all day. You feel like a dope. And you, you build, you end up building your world around this silly little device. And then all of a sudden it doesn't work. My calendar isn't working. So I miss my daughter's dentist appointment. And it's like, <laughs> oh, it's man. just like, oh, and then I finally get it working tonight. You know, I, I you know, go through the whole process and I, I get it all restored. So everything's back. And then I have to rearrange all the apps again. And uh, that's the just worst. Like, just like beat myself over the head with this stupid thing. You know, it's only stupid and silly when it's not working, though. You know, when it is working, it's really pretty good. No, you're right. You're right. But it's those moments where it's not working and you realize how dependent you've become on oh, it. Oh, you're dependent. That yeah. you realize that, uh, you know, it's like it's like the Dumb, Dumb and Dumber 2 trailer ripping that catheter out. <laughs> it's like that's, that's what it felt like all day long, you know. <laughs> Somebody was tugging and it just... <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's so good. Oh, I was going to go for more of a, a teat. Something that ended in teat, <laughs> the suckling at the technology teat. Yes, I right. go for the farm, the agricultural agri humor. Agri humor, really... <laughs> yeah. I I go down to a much more base level. <laughs> yeah, catheter. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> hey, Medical. well, I'm glad you I'm glad you got it working, and uh, most importantly, did in your rejiggering, uh, did my name change in the speed dial ranking? <laughs> Nothing. Why, yes. Well, yeah, that's what you need to say. Always say that. Uh, yes, I forgot where everybody went, and you are number one. That's right. Always fact, number one. Everyone else is gone, mysteriously. It's just you. <laughs> I have no idea how that happened, officer. Let's tell the people where we're from. Where are we from? Real everybody, that's the show you're listening to right now. I'm Pete Wright. That there's Andy Nelson. Hey, and we spoil movies. We are wrapping up our fantastic Terry Gilliam series tonight with 12 Monkeys. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but first, you should make sure you know where to find us. So, you head over to thenextreel.com, you can read the blog stylings of the once and future king. Steve Sarmento. Uh, you can catch up with all the latest shows we've done. I was a little bit late. I, I, I'm sorry. I was a little bit late on our Guardians of the Galaxy episode. We uh, were quite, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Chatty? Uh, yeah. And, a uh, bit verbose. We were verbose, and editing took uh, an order of, <laughs> order of magnitude longer than it normally does to get that show out. But it is out. It came out uh, earlier, so check your feeds. Make sure you didn't uh, you don't miss the our conversation on Guardians of the Galaxy. Now that I edited it, it's really it's a nice, tight show. So uh, it's still long, but you, know, you can hear what we think about that show. You also can find us on the Twitter and on uh, Pinterest. You can catch up our, our fantastic uh, movie poster gallery that... Uh, that Andy has been uh, dutifully uh, curating for mm. the better part of a decade. And, like the old uh, ball and chain. <laughs> <laughs> and now, uh, and now let's, uh, let's give this the update on the uh, hashtag, guess the movie, hashtag Pony Prize. Uh, how did we do this week on old Instagram? 
It was pretty good. You know, I was a little nervous. Uh, the movie was 16 Candles this week, and as a film that has a very loyal fan base, um, I, I knew that it was a dangerous territory to jump into something like this, especially as a movie that I hadn't seen in a while and a movie I frankly don't like very much. Um, I, you know, my wife loves it, and she I, I got a lot of... Uh, scorn and rolls of the eyes as I talked about this movie with her. But I actually had to go through the images with her to say, okay, now can I show this? Oh, no, no, no. Why, are you kidding? That's so obvious. It's, uh, it's like, but it's just a bedroom. No, 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 no. Everyone's going to know that. It's like, wow, Andy, okay. you boob. <laughs> it's a tricky movie, but, you know, it, 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 I did manage to pull some images that were a little less obvious, so so yeah, it was about I think about image four or so that uh, Jenny Level uh, figured Jenny, it out. Jenny, Jenny. Yeah, so, so she guessed that it was sixteen candles. Oh, fantastic! Awesome. Uh, well, I think on that news, let's do trailers. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna do. Fir- I'm gonna go first. Do it. Do it. I. Uh, uh, it, it, crazy! It's always crazy seeing old uh, you know, little Danny Radcliffe when he hits the big screen and he's not wearing his wizard's robes. It it's a little. Be, it's a little weird still for me. It, it, it's totally strange. You know, it's it's weird because because those movies because my kids are at that age that those movies are still in pretty heavy rotation at my house. So I don't see him in anything else. He's not like. Um, you know, pretty much any of the adults in the movies that are in so many other movies. But, you know, seeing when when I see Daniel Radcliffe, I'm always a little bit shaken. And in this one, I'm shaken because he actually does have horns. Uh, the film is Horns. It is uh, directed by Alexandra Aja, uh, written by Keith Boonin. I think it's, I think it's Aja. Oh, whatever. <laughs> but he it, likes it when you it say Aja. It would be. It reminds him of uh-huh. the band. <laughs> where, is, where is he from? I believe he is a Frenchman. Frenchman? See, you know why I get that, that, that torn up? Why I mess up his name? I don't. Is because of the... Um, there's a, a wonderful comic artist uh, who has done an adaptation, uh, the, the current adaptation of uh, Hawkeye, mm-hmm. um, is, has been done by this uh, a fellow whose name is Aha. I don't think it's Aja. I don't know. Maybe I'm... I could be wrong. Maybe maybe it sounds better if you say "aha." <laughs> <laughs> Alexander, uh, aha! We should do that. But first, let's talk about the trailer "Horns" because it's uh, it looks it, it looks good. It's uh, sort of I don't know if it's supposed to be a, at all funny, but I find myself chuckling at it. It, it was billed as a horror film, um, in which uh, Danny Radcliffe. It's sort of a Gone Girl esque uh, trailer where we have uh, Danny Radcliffe is, is um, involved somehow in the disappearance and death of of um, his. Uh, his love, and uh, there is some question about his involvement in her death. That's that's what I understand of it. That's that's pretty much it. And as a result of his involvement and the questions around it, he does sprout ram's horns out of his forehead. And so uh, the film is both a um, it's kind of a fish out of water. Like what would a goat do if it had to put on clothes? Film. Uh, and uh, and it's a mystery uh, thriller. It's a goat uh-huh. horror. It's goat horror. <laughs> is what it is. Aha. Uh-huh. Aha. Uh-huh. 
He was meant to make <laughs> a little, this movie. A little devilish. A little devilish. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think of it? Uh, it looks it looks interesting. I mean, uh, Alexander Alexandre, Alexandre however, however French you want to get with his name. Uh, I think I've seen every film of his since High Tension, which I you know I think he's got a a, a, um, a good sense of ho- directing horror, even if I don't think the films themselves are that good. Um, the only film I have seen of his is Piranha 3D. Yeah, and and that one he plays with the he definitely there's some kind of just the horror, but really it's more just kind of a throwback to kind of the '80s yeah. horror comedy, you know, and uh, it's just kind of an obscene movie, really. Um, but uh, you know, fun in its own way, I guess. I mean, he got Richard Dreyfus to get in there, <laughs> so got to give him credit for that, right? Yeah, you do some. Uh, so you know, I I'm excited to see Horns. I think it uh, I think it's uh, you know it looks really interesting, and just the fact that it has Daniel Radcliffe as this uh, this uh, you know horny little devil, uh, whatever you want to call him, it <laughs> it makes me uh, it it just piques my curiosity, and I you know I, I like that Daniel Radcliffe is working to step out of the the Harry Potter um, uh, you know cloak that he's been wearing. Yeah. Uh, Know, and it's uh, you know I think he's choosing some interesting stuff, and I think this looks like an interesting film. So I'm I, in. I I'm glad to hear it. I think that's it. that's what's good, you know because I'm not a huge fan of the horror thing, and so I, it really is between uh, you know it's it's the Daniel Radcliffe lure that he's you know it's just so weird to watch him speak, especially when it's when an, it's a, an American an accent. American accent exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so anyhow, um, and I've uh, just, uh, stand by, stand by. It comes out in, when is it, October? Halloween. Yeah, it's a Halloween film. It's All Hallows' Eve. There you go. Mm-hmm. That's mine. Your Excellent. turn. Well, mine looks, uh, you know, kind of uh, dramatic and creepy as well in its own strange way. It's the crime drama Nightcrawler with the... Uh, uh, none other than our favorite Blue Marvel hero. Oh wait, that's the wrong Nightcrawler. <laughs> Silly me. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's uh, Jake Gyllenhaal as this uh, guy who kind of becomes this uh, freelance crime journalist, and uh, he's kind of prowling at night looking for you know aftermath of crimes to take pictures with and document so that he can get into into the TV news and he realizes that this is something that he's he's good at and kind of taps into becomes you know this is his kind of career but it's one of those movies where it's like it's that dark seedy side of the city and it's like it kind of becomes him and it does you know I do feel there's a, an odd little like Travis Bickle element to him in this that I find very interesting coming out of Jake Gyllenhaal and I'm uh, I'm very curious to see how he ends up uh, playing it over the course of the film because it it strikes me as a portrayal that could uh, be talked about when it comes time for award nominations, or it could be a performance that you watch and you realize it's just, it kind of crosses that line to the point where it's just a little over the top and, and kind of insane. And it could enter kind of the Nicolas Cage territory. So, <laughs> so I'm really curious. I'd like to think that it's going to be good because I think Jake Gyllenhaal generally is a, is quite a solid actor. And uh, the story looks really intriguing. And even though I don't get a whole lot out of it, um, it paints this really interesting portrayal of this character that he plays, uh, Lou Bloom. 
And um, I don't know. I, I am really drawn to the kind of insane character that he is. And Dan Gilroy is, wrote and directed this, who is the uh, the brother of Tony Gilroy. We've talked about on the mm-hmm. show before. Uh, both of them wrote The Bourne Legacy together. And, and he's responsible uh, for the story of Real Steel, one of our, I think, collected favorites. Yes, absolutely. Love that one. And so, you know, I, I give credit to these Gilroys. I think they uh, generally crank out some pretty interesting stuff. So I got to say, I'm kind of looking forward to this uh, Nightcrawler film. I, you know, I'm a sucker for any media film, anything about media. And when he, in, in the trailer, he turns around and he says, I really believe that television news is something that I could be really good at and also love. While I, at first I heard that and I threw up in my mouth, I thought, <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm going to be just into this film. I can. Yeah. I am going to be into this film. Oh, I yeah. love it when they turn turn. You know when they when they play with with media, and, well, and so this, and this speaks you know clo- similar to you know our whole thing of the Joe Show, the yeah. documentary that I worked on is the whole idea of how does what are the media's responsibilities in in uh, in its relationship with what it's portraying, and by by choosing to portray certain things over other things, are you uh, it, do you have a hand in it now as far as you know, causing that to happen? And in this trailer, it looks like he is a reporter who really kind of crosses that line and psychologically, you know, kind of changes to the place where he actually possibly might be causing some crimes in order to get some of these stories. Yes. At least that's what it looks like. You know, the trailer is very vague, but and that's another October film, October 17th. And uh, now, Andy, uh... they're coming. You're a very good observer, Cole. We have a very advanced program, something very different. An opportunity to reduce your sentence considerably. And possibly play an important role in returning the human race to the surface of the Earth. No license, no prints, no warrants. But he took on five cops like he was adjusted to the eyeballs. What year is this? What year do you think it is? 1996. That's the future, James. Do you think you're living in the future? I'm simply trying to gather information to help the people in the present trace the path of the virus. We're not in the present now. This is a place for crazy people. I'm not saying you're not mentally ill on the brawl. I know you're <laughs> crazy as a loon. The army of the 12 monkeys, they're the ones that spread the virus. Monkeys. He's been living in a meticulously constructed fantasy world, and that world is starting to disintegrate. You haven't become addicted to that dying world? No, sir. He needs help. I think I'm crazy when people start dying next month. I don't belong here. You're here because of the system. I know some things that you don't know. Yes, my son. You sent me to the wrong year. You're certain of that? Science ain't an exact science. You had a bullet from World War One in your leg, James. How did it get there? I don't know. You're a trained psychiatrist. You know the difference between what's real and what's not. You said that I had delusions. You said you could explain. I'm trying to. I want the future to be unknown. I can help you. Get you out. I just want to do my part to get us back on top in charge of the planet. I, Andy, I posted, I'm not sure if you saw this, but did you see today that I, I went ahead and zipped right ahead and posted some teaser images? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> and uh, you know, sometimes I do that. Yeah, and post that just to just get it out there. And um, it, you know, I I'm sometimes you know people write with with some exuberance. And uh, uh, in in this case, we did get some uh, get a, an exuberant comment about this film we're going to be talking about tonight, right? Yeah, Matt Matt Pedrano, yes, many exclamation points, twelve monkeys, yeah, many exclamation points, can't wait to hear it, many exclamation points. <laughs> there and and you know I you start researching about this film, you start reading up on this film. There, there's there are people feel very strongly about this film. Is that your sense? I uh, I well I you know I guess I never really thought about it but it does seem that this is a film I I don't know if it's uh that I'd call it a cult film um but it uh really? because it, No, because a cult film I think by definition is a film that didn't do well and then kind of found its following later. Okay. Right? Yeah, Isn't that yeah, kind I of mean definition? I like Buckaroo Bonsai or thing, you know, things that yeah. that kind of have somehow maintained a fan base, uh, even though it didn't really find one initially. And this one, I think, I mean, this one did really well. You know, it did it did really well for itself when it came out. Yeah. And so I don't know if I'd say it's a cult film, but it certainly has a following. Yeah, I think so too. It's it's one of those. It's a funny film though, because my sense of it is it's it's not a film that has landed for me in in my consciousness as the great films do you know it's not mm. in that category of the great films and i think as i as i'm making notes about this i think and and you'll have to check me on this i feel like i'm going to get mail i love so many individual elements of this film. I really love them. I love watching the way these things like work on screen, the way uh, our three major characters play with each other, I, the way, um, you know, and, and the performances really are standout in, in this film, truly. Uh, I, I love many of the elements of production design. I love the, the, the stance that Gilliam takes on time uh, in, this, in this film. I mean, there's so many individual things I love about it. And yet, uh, on the whole, it's it's not a great film for me. Interesting. It's it is not more than the sum of its fantastic parts. Hmm. I I find it like it's it's the Chinese food film for me. I love it while I'm watching it, and then it's over, and I God, what was that about? Like I have to work to remember many elements of this film. Hmm. I was I was nervous just saying that to you. I don't hate this film. I really don't. I I love it when I'm watching it. Right now I'm like, wow. I had to really I had to mind map the film in order to be able to talk about it. Well, but I think that's one of the things that I love about the film is that it's it is so kind of just a convoluted that it really to me, it's it's fun to talk about. It's fun to think about, and it is a complicated film. But with all of its kind of you know the back and forth and, and the different times that 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 Cole jumps to and everything, and you know it's a time travel movie. You you yeah. always end up kind of in that circle when you're dealing with time travel. And I don't know. That's just something I've always kind of really loved about it and have latched onto. And for me, it's a film. I I don't think I've ever 
enjoyed it as much as when I first saw it back in uh, January 96 um, when it first came to a theater near me. Um, I It was just one that I was spellbound by. I remember just, you know, the whole the whole tale uh, from beginning of, of seeing the, the dream of, of Cole when he was a, a boy all the way to the last moment of the, the uh, uh, you know, insurance lady on the plane and then seeing young Cole again. I, I just really always was uh, spellbound by it um, or right out of the gate. And I've, I've never quite hit that high point. Uh, again, but I do always enjoy this film every time I watch it, and I'm always still very impressed with it when I watch it, and I really enjoy the story. I think this is a film where I can... Um, I think that I have those films that I really enjoy because I enjoy the script so much, and I, I enjoy the way that the storytellers actually put the story together, um, even if it's a film that I... I don't really kind of uh, latch onto and watch all the time anymore. Hmm. You know, this yeah. is, this, this is one of those for me where, I mean, I haven't seen it in ages and I definitely enjoy watching it. And I have a great time watching it. And I think it's a fantastic film, but I, uh, but at the same time, I, I like, I, I really enjoy the script and, but then I'm like, okay, well, I don't need to watch 12 monkeys for a while now. Yeah. Well, I certainly feel that way. Mostly because yeah. I forget about it. Yeah. Um, 12, 12 what? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, I, uh, yeah, I just go watch Planet of the Apes again and I'm fine. Um, uh, the, uh, I, uh, I get, we got to start with the, the, well, I guess we should start with the, uh, just to talk about the time and the, the, um, uh, plot summary. Can we do that? Yeah. Uh, for those like us who haven't seen it in a long time, don't quite remember the, uh, major points. Yeah. It's starts with Cole as a, uh, well, you see a dream of young Cole in an airport. And uh, then it comes to Bruce Willis Cole in the future. And then they are living underground now because a virus back in 1995 had, or 97, I can't remember what year. 96, vi- 97. Yeah. yeah, the virus had actually wiped out 5 million people on the planet and everyone else went underground. They are sending people up to the surface to collect insects and things like that so that they can test and see if the top is still uh, polluted. And Bruce Willis is one of these, uh, he's a prisoner because he had done something wrong and they use these prisoners to test this. And he goes and he, you know, he's a good, uh, a good listener. He does what he's told. So they put him in this program where they send him back in time to try to find the source of the virus. And so he goes back in time, but they send him to the wrong year. They send him to 1990. It's supposed to be 1996. And he ends up in a mental institution where he meets uh, Brad Pitt's character, Jeffrey Goins. He meets his doctor, uh, played by Madeline Stowe, uh, Dr. Rayleigh. And, uh, And then he's brought back to the, you know, the present, a.k.a. our future, um, they they send him back to 1996, and he finds the doctor again. And this is like try try explaining this. This is yeah. like I'm trying to. Okay, so he finds the doctor again and kidnaps her because he's got a he needs help finding the source of the twelve monkeys, uh, which they think is the the source of this virus. Because uh, now we got to interject here because yes. when he went back, uh, when he was taken back to his time, they played the voicemail. Right. Did you say that? I didn't say that. But yes, there's a voicemail that they play about the army of the 12 monkeys 
Yes, and it's it's the doctor's voice. I mean, you can tell it's Madeline Stowe's uh, voice. And he never knew about that. He never knew that the voicemail was left and hadn't experienced it. Right. Now you. And so he he somehow gosh i can't remember now <laughs> i just i just rewatched it but it's like he needs to get somehow he thinks that jeffrey goins is involved in this right yeah uh, or no they find they find a uh they find they they see the 12 monkeys spray painted on a wall well and because the voicemail them. tells them it's in philadelphia so they go right. it tells them where it is Right, so they go to Philadelphia. He has all these pictures that they've shown him and stuff, and they and he finds this uh, like animal rights activist group holed up in this little, you know, I don't know, kind of an old restaurant basically, and they uh, they uh, are connected to Jeffrey Goins because he's kind of this uh, this person. His father works in this lab developing these. Uh, tests for an- testing on animals and all this stuff, and so th- they think that's a connection, and so they want to go get Jeffrey Goins. They go to his house, uh, where he's now out of the mental institution. He's hanging out with his his dad, Christopher Plummer, and <laughs> it's just it's like so complicated. And so he, but Jeffrey Goins, it doesn't seem like uh, you know he. I don't know. It, it's a. It's kind of a. a a dead end. So he ends up, but then he ends up getting zapped back to the present. They think in the, in the, in the present, AKA our future again, <laughs> they think that he, uh, Jeffrey Goins is, uh, no, that, yeah, the Jeffrey Goins and is, is the head of this 12 monkeys. And so he's the one who they're going to go watch now because the whole goal of the future is to figure out how did this virus start so that they can, uh, well, th- this is an yeah, interesting... that this is a really good point because it's the, that I and it's one of the things I really do love about Gilliam's approach of time. It's not to change the future. They don't send him to the past to change the future. They send him back to collect data on the virus so that they can have they can find a cure, allowing them to go back to the surface and not have right. to live underground anymore. Yeah, it is really interesting, and that's something that I, I, I don't know. For some reason, I always thought that uh, it was something that they were going to try to fix it. But, it, you know, this time it, it was realizing that they don't – they just want to move back up to the top. Right. And, and then, you know, it'll be this population on Earth that has been cut in, in a, you know, I don't know, a hugely back. So um, it would be very interesting to to kind of see that society, but that's really what they're looking to do. So it's it's strange. And so anyway, so he convinces them he needs to go back because now, because he's been hanging out w- uh, with Madeline Stowe, this psychiatrist, he thinks that he's actually crazy, and he thinks these th- this whole future world is actually all in his head, and he just wants to go back to kind of what he thinks now is re- real, hanging out with Madeline Stowe, and and then get committed basically, or just basically right. <laughs> just like I'm crazy, I don't want to, I, I just want to, you know, I want you to keep, help me stay here, sort of thing, and and it, that's a really interesting element of the film that I. I find uh, piques my curiosity every time I watch it is this whole notion of is he is he crazy is it just kind of a uh, is he really traveling through time or yeah. is it just kind of all this fabricated uh, reality that he's made for himself right and the fact that they have a wonderful switch that as he is is dealing with his own demons she is dealing with hers and discovering that she's she actually is buying into it yeah and that's that's a really interesting element. 
that um, that then comes because she starts finding evidence that he's telling the truth that he is from the future and he's finding this evidence from her that he's just crazy. And so they basically kind of switch places, which is a great point in the film when you have your characters kind of flip flop like that. Right. And, um, but then, you know, they figure out that it's, it's this other, they, you know, they're going to flee and they figure out who it is at the airport uh, that works for, uh, Goins dad and that Jeffrey Goins was really just, they were just going to do these stupid pranks. And, but of course it's too late. The guy is at the airport. He gets away. Uh, Bruce Willis is killed and he sees himself getting killed, creating this vicious circle of his life where he's perpetually going to see himself get killed and perpetually going to grow up to be this guy who gets sent back in the past only to track this down and get killed in front of himself. It's a very interesting loop that he's kind of stuck in yes yes it's delicious it is a delicious loop i i do love it and i love it because you know it's it's revealed to us at just the right places yeah the fact that we meet young cole uh, in the beginning of the film we don't know that it's him we just think it's a it's a kid that it happens to be watching a murder right a a shooting uh at at some point at least for me um you know there is a point in the film where i actually think that that's not cole but it's actually uh young goins it's actually brad pitt's character who's watching him you know be killed and so like there is this there's a sort of roller coaster on interpretation like where what sort of clues you gilliam gives you um through the film to to actually let these holes get filled in uh into that final sequence um and it's really it's great it's great it is it's really interesting and now i will say that um as as much as i find it interesting the notion that terry gilliam approached this film with of wanting to create this this world where you never really know if if he really is from the future or if it's all in his mind that's something that I, I find really interesting, but I've never found that I completely buy into that. Like, I've always bought, I've always been convinced from the story that he is actually from the future. And, like, this whole story is him. And I like the element of him trying to figure out, am I crazy or am I not? Um, but because, I've wait never... a minute, did I miss what you just said? You, that you actually, you buy into the fact that it is, it, that he is a time future. traveler. Yeah, okay. he is time traveling. Uh, not that he is, he not really is legitimately crazy. Yeah, I've never bought into that. I think it's a really interesting element that they bring into a time travel movie, and I enjoy the way that they play it throughout. But I think that the um, if that's the direction that they really wanted to go with the script, I don't think that they would have, they should have um, had any scenes outside of, of Cole and his world, because any scene when you have just... Uh, Dr. Rayleigh talking to uh, talking to a police officer or looking through her papers to find these photos. That's all leading us down this road where all of a sudden we're not with we're not with Cole anymore. Right. We're with her, and she's show, she is finding this evidence that he's right. And so, if they were really going to go down that road, I think they would have had to stay with Cole the entire time and never stepped out to to show us um, any other character really. And you know, I I think that. That's an interesting way to do a time travel film where you really only see it from one person's perspective. And then the game is, you know, is that person uh, um, crazy or are they um, are they really from the future? And I, I think, gosh, what was that movie that came out? It was uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. Uh, oh, here it is. Happy Accidents um, with uh, him and Marissa Tomei that came out in 2000. 
was an interesting film where Marissa Tomei is this uh, girl who has just bad luck with guys. She's never uh, found <laughs> anything that works. And then what a she unique meets, character. Yeah, yeah. She meets this guy who um, seems really nice, and but it finds uh, he uh, says that he's from the future. And so but we see it from her point of view. And so the whole thing is like, is he crazy or is he really from the future? And you never really get any sense of it until the ending. And it's a great little, it's a great little twist on it. But, and honestly, I haven't seen it, it since it came out in theaters. But um, that's one that stuck with me as one that that's a great example of a time travel movie where you really have no idea if this person is crazy or if they are uh, really from the future. And I thought they played that really well. And I love the way that they do it in 12 monkeys. I just don't know if I buy into it. You know, is, you know, is he this or is he that? I'm like, yeah, well, he, he thinks he's crazy, but he really is from the future. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I have a much more, I think, practical approach to that argument. While I say, I, I think the movie is better if you go into it with all of these competing theories in your mind. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I, I simply don't enjoy it, thinking that he is just straight crazy. I, I don't enjoy the film looking at it that way. That that's totally me. But there is no, there's no. It's just a very, very grim um, uh, portrayal, and it's it it falls into that category of um, sort of a, a film you watch in suffrage, like like or, or in suffering, like a, a you know diving bell and a butterfly. It just makes me uncomfortable the whole way through. But mm-hmm. if I look at it as if he really is, um, you know, it's more that sort of um, the 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 religious tie-in, you know, that he he becomes sort of the savior, um, and uh, you know, I, I get much more uh, joy out of watching the film. Um, in that light, because yeah. he has greater power in the film. He has greater control, and I, I like watching him be tested. He, I like watching that, that power be be tested in a way, you know, as a volunteer. You know, he's going from a, a place where he has zero power to a place where ultimately he has a lot if he can just get over these these immediate tests in front of him and figure out how to get keep his wits together. Um, I like that a lot. I, I, I enjoy that piece of it. Um, what do you think about this whole, about the way Gilliam tests the, uh, the whole kill your grandfather, you know, paradox in this, in this film that, that in fact, now that you, you watch it again with this for, for the show, um, you know, coming to a clearer understanding of what, of the rules of time travel in 12 monkeys well in what sense like is there a particular part you're talking about well i you know for me it's it's you know it's all of it it's the fact that he's gone back in time and we are we're so conditioned right now with this spate of of time travel movies that we've we've seen you know kind of recently since then that all have the same are, are testing the same boundaries of when you go back in time you know what are the rules of time travel right you can't run into yourself there's a time paradox what you you can't change anything or you change the future you can't i mean and this film is really very clear in in one sequence he says you know future is the future it's already happened um that uh that's a that's a shift in the way we look at at dealing with time um in modern time travel films and i think it's really interesting and i'm not i am not a student of time travel films um 
you know, I, but I, I enjoy thinking about them. And, and um, this one seems to me uh, it stands out. Well, it does. You know, they, they like we said, I mean, they're not, set, they're not setting out to change uh, the past so that they can have a better future. But does, it, does out- it bug you that do you find yourself kind of itchy about, you know, changing the timeline? I, you know, I, not really. It's, it, you know, I mean, I, I look at it as, okay, that's just a, a different way of looking at this time travel movie. You know, I guess I don't think about it too much. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's one of those things where, okay, he, they accidentally send him to 1990. Uh, you know, if you look at the butterfly effect, by doing that, that could have created all sorts of ripples that uh, would have, could have met that, uh, you know, uh, David Morse's character never ended up working for Christopher Plummer. You know, it's like right. it's like this this whole butterfly effect that inevitably uh, you you kind of fall into that um, that trap in time travel movies. That conundrum of you know one little thing that changes all of a sudden is going to create a ripple effect, and how does that uh, change the the entire future? And, and is that going to be something that completely makes it just kind of dismisses everything that they're setting out to do i think the nature of time travel movies is like you know i don't know it's it, for me it's like i'll buy into it as, you know regardless of what their uh, uh rules are as long as it seems like the stuff that they're actually doing um makes sense with the rules that they're setting up like for me it's like okay because i've seen so many variations on time travel and everything from uh, you know, Looper, where the guy is watching his arm kind of fall off as they're cutting it off in the in the past, mm-hmm. um, or um, or the future. I can't even remember. <laughs> Again, time travel movies. Yeah, right. Um, to to <laughs> um, to um, Primer. To um, was that awful one with uh, Edward Burns uh, that uh, that he did, where the, the the butterfly effect one, where it was. Um, the little butterfly, you know, they fly, uh, the, the dinosaur, God, what was that called? It was Sound so bad. of Thunder? Sound of Thunder. Oh, man, that was a to- hor- horrible one. But it's like yeah. he goes back to the present, but then it's waves of change that kind of keep coming through. So, I mean, as long as the rules within the story make sense, I, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be bugged too much by it, I guess. And so these rules, I think they work fine for me because they kind of, they set it up and I, I go along with it because nothing seems out of the ordinary in the context of this time travel situation that they've created. Well, what's interesting about the, about that, let me just say this about that. Okay. <clears throat> is that none of it ultimately matters in the point of the film, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, they do spend just enough time talking about it that, you're you you're thinking about it you're aware of the rules of the time travel just as they spend plenty of time talking about the army of the 12 monkeys which ultimately again uh is not related to the um uh to the final resolution of the film and the virus it's a great red herring it is a great red herring and um so I'm trying to think about how many uh, sequences we, how many scenes we actually see David Morse uh, and his apocalyptic nut stuff. I think three. Well, we see him getting his book signed. I think that's yep, the first time. That's one. We see him working in the lab when we realize, oh, this is, right. This is when he's on the, the lab. 
when Dr. Goins is on the phone with Rayleigh, right? Yep, yep. Okay. And, and then we see I, him at the airport. Yeah, and then, yeah, because he's got the, there's a photo of him in the newspaper, but we don't actually see him there. But that's where, that's where uh, Bruce Willis makes the connection. Or no, that's where Dr. Rayleigh makes the connection. So he mm-hmm. sees him in the newspaper after having just seen him at the counter or at the bookstore. So three scenes. Yep. Yeah. The the whole film hinges on three scenes with David Morse. Is that fair? Yeah. All right. But because it's not it's not David Morse that it's hinged no. on. It's hinged on the virus. It is hinged on the virus. That's true. And and that and that's why it works. It doesn't matter that because because well it, it does matter because he's the like he's the the deliverer of the virus like it, right right that's the point is there is someone who feels strong enough about it and they were looking at somebody that they thought felt strong enough about it in in Brad Pitt's character um, and they were wrong but they needed a delivery vessel a vessel for getting this thing into the air so it it does matter well it, right it does matter I that's not what I meant it's just that. Um, it doesn't matter that he's seen so few times because, because it's, it's just the, the, you know, the idea of the virus getting spread by somebody. And it's just, it's like any mystery story by Agatha Christie, where you've got this cast of characters and you don't know which one it is. And you look at one of those and I'm sure that some of the people who end up, you know, actually doing the crime are featured in only a few scenes, but it's because we've been misled so many times down all these different rabbit holes that all of a sudden when those puzzle pieces come, come into place, you're like, Oh, I should have seen it all along because of those three scenes that that person was in. It all makes sense to me, but because, uh, you know, because of the nature of, uh, this, you know, the 12 monkeys, I mean, they become the other things like it's the army of the 12 monkeys. No, it's Jeffrey Groen's. Oh, maybe it's his father. It's like, they're leading us down these, these kind of, it's a mystery. They're leading us down these little rabbit holes as we try to find it only to realize as we get all those final puzzle pieces. And so I think that the three scenes works quite well. And I think that it helps that David Morris carries that role really well. Uh, But I think it works really well in context of what they're actually setting out to do in the film. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, you know, I guess I, I was saying that not being critical of the fact that, you know, such an important part of the film is is relegated to three scenes, but that uh, once you pull out those three scenes and realize just how much misdirection you've undergone over mm-hmm. the last, you know, hour and a half, um, it, it really is sort of a magical unveiling. And I think that's one of the things that the film does really well, that by the time you, um, by the time you make it to the airport scene, you have seen enough of it, uh, that as now new faces are finally revealed for that last time, um, it, it all comes together in a, in a really wonderful dance. And, and I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of that. I mean, I, I, I really like it. I think it's uh, I think it's really very well architected. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree. Okay, so Brad Pitt. I think he's great in this. Oh I think my he's, goodness, is great. Yes. He's 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 just completely manic. What's funny about this is this was early in his career. Um he had done you know a few films that had uh, I don't think he was going down the path that he wanted to be going down. Um this was filmed right after 7 before seven was released. So it wasn't quite a breakout for him yet. It was filmed after um, um, 
Legends of the Fall, uh, or maybe right, right when those were coming out. Yeah. And so he, he had, as Terry Gilliam said, he wanted to escape from the blonde bimbo thing. And, and you can see that with Brad Pitt. He's always taken roles that kind of, you know, show him trying to, trying to step out periodically from kind of the, what Hollywood keeps casting him as. And so he cast him in this role, and then he, he was regretting it. Terry, Terry Gilliam was very regretful that he had cast Brad Pitt because he couldn't get the cadence of this character. And so he actually put him with um, Stephen Bridgewater, who is a, a DJ, an ex-DJ, who actually had helped uh, Jeff Bridges on The Fisher King. Um, and he, he worked with Brad to get this um, just ability to speak quickly and to just rattle things off and this guy steven when he first uh first met brad he called terry and was like what have i ever done to you to deserve this he can't do it this guy's not got no breath control he's got a lazy tongue he's terrible and it's interesting because you look at, at how brad pitt has you know progressed as an actor it, it to me it seems like this training that he got for 12 monkeys has really helped him kind of find a better path for acting i think you know, because I feel like from this point on, he he really has found a way to act, and, and maybe it's just because he learned to use his tongue and he trained his tongue to speak quickly, and so he wasn't so lazy anymore. And it it I mean, it, this role became I think such a defining character for him, and he got an Oscar nomination for it, yeah. and he won the Golden Globe for it, where he this was where he thanked you know Alka Seltzer or whatever when he won his award. It was a very strange speech, but. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was it was great because I think he brought that manic energy that he needed, and Terry Gilliam ended up being very happy that he cast him. But it it wasn't an immediate thing. He was very nervous for a while. Yeah, yeah, I you can totally see it. This is transformational um, for him. It was the first time that I, I remember seeing him and thinking this guy's an actor, um, and and you know I, clearly he he and I should have been talking sooner. <laughs> uh, uh, but but I I am he is to, for me he's the strongest performance in this film and um, he's he's the he's the thing that keeps me coming back um, and and keeps me interested in in his other performances I you know I, when I think of my my very favorite films of all time like he's involved in them Fight Club is is way up there on my list and it's it is in no small part because of his because of his role I I see you know the way he handles uh, voice and cadence as you say I mean those he is just uh, really really good at it when you stop and and let him just sort of <laughs> let his performance just sort of wash over you <laughs> oh yeah yeah don't 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 let brad pitt wash over you <laughs> you'll regret it <laughs> you'll regret it <laughs> yeah no he he is fantastic in this yeah. film and yeah. it's and he gives a great uh very interesting character for all of the other actors to play off of yeah he, he brings so much energy to every scene that he's in Say me, tell me again. Seven was released before this one was released, and the, but this one and this one shot immediately after it as well. Right, this shot right after Seven. Yeah. Uh, seven was released earlier. I think it's in September two thousand five. This was released uh, right after Christmas two thousand five. Uh, limited, and then I think most places it was released January oh six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, that's the. Uh, 
that's another one that I, uh, like that film yeah uh it's just way way up there oh yeah hmm. yeah right. seven seven's up in my top five i think mm-hmm. it's uh and johnny suede i know was a big one for you too <laughs> no you're on to me <laughs> uh yes all right so he's really great and not to say that bruce willis isn't also um quite good and and you know this is it's one of the things about his performance in this film is that he is able to keep and i think this is what allows me to to latch on to his um his mania is that i i is that he's able to be crazy and strong at the same time even when he's at his very worst when he first comes back in time and he is you know lashed down to the floor of the cell in restraints right right even at that point um i i still feel like uh, connected to to his objective right that he is still connected to his mission um even though he's being tested and they did a good job of setting that up the doctor said you know there are the weak-minded don't do well and we think you're not weak-minded and and uh he he i think really is able to pull that off i think that uh this was a great opportunity for bruce willis to step out of the action kind of hero movie star that he had become um so quickly on the heels of the uh, kind of the dashing romantic TV star that he had become, you know, right from moonlighting to breaking out in, in with Die Hard and becoming this big action star to trying to and like Brad Pitt again. He's another actor who's trying to prove that he's more than just what everybody says he is. And, you know, he was he did uh, was doing bit parts in movies like um Pulp Fiction, I think, is probably the most obvious one. Yeah. And um, uh, that to show people that he could do something that was a little different, even though that definitely still has some kind of the action stuff going on with it. Um, but then this was this proved, uh, I think, his first opportunity to really st- take a fe- uh, like a full on uh, lead role in a feature where he could show people that he is doing something that's that's not just the action stuff. And I think he does a great job. I think he. Um, plays so differently than he does in the diehard films he comes across um i don't know if i'd say timid but he comes across as unsure maybe i would say like he he just is he's very tentative about some of the the choices that he has to make and 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 uh just doesn't seem like he um is quite as um aggressive a, a character i mean when she uh after he's you know, locked her in the trunk of the car and he opens it and she kicks him in the face and starts beating him up. I mean, he doesn't try to stop her at all. He just kind of lays there and takes it, which I find so interesting because, I mean, you know, you think of Bruce Willis, it's like, this is Bruce Willis. He's a character who, he's an actor who's played characters who could clearly stop her from beating him up. But here he is as as this character who's in this place where he's just so lost in his own mind that he's just doing nothing. And I find that so interesting and compelling and this this constant confusion. And that's that's why I really do love this kind of comparison to is he mad, is he not? I really – well, I mean his journey of that, am I mad, am I not? Um, Because I think of of what it does to you going from this time – yeah, I, I can't remember what year it is, 2037, I think, yeah. to all of a sudden 1990, yeah. to 2037, to 1996, or to 18, no, 1912, you know, or whatever it is, to 1996. Uh, and it's just like jumping around. And, and 
you can lose yourself. And I think that's a really interesting aspect of this time travel movie where a character is breaking down because they're losing sense of what's real anymore. And that's something you don't see very often in time travel movies that I really do feel is very strong in this one. And I think Bruce Willis plays it perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. I, he's, um, I, I like the way you say that, Tim. And I mean, when I characterize him as, as sort of strong, it, it really is that balance between mental and emotional strength and, and watching him walk that banister, that, that sort of, uh, that rail, um, is, is really elegant in this film. And to do it opposite Madeline Stowe, who in this film, I mean, I, this is the film. I fell in love with her just a little bit, uh, in this film. She's, she is wonderful and unique uh, in the way she she speaks and moves and emotes and the way she interacts as the therapist and mother character to mm-hmm. him, sort of rehabilitating him uh, as she falls into her own sense of, of sort of delirium before the truth is unveiled. I think she does this. Uh, she, she walks that rail equally um, deftly. Yeah, and I find her... I always find her such a compelling character to watch because there's that moment that she has in the film where he jumps out of the car because he sees the 12 monkeys tags on the wall and she has her moment to get away from him. This is at the point in the film where he's kidnapped her right? and she, she's behind the wheel of the car and can drive away and she's just about to, she shuts the door and is getting ready to go. And then she has that moment where she's, it's like there's something about him that, I mean, when she first meets him, it's like, I feel like I've met you somewhere before. And there's this weird connection between these two characters. And it's, there's something in her that doesn't allow her to leave. And I find that really compelling. Not just that, but then from that point on, it, I, I think that it's, it's, I love how she plays the character because there is this anger that she constantly has after that point. Um, well, and she, she has it you know, most of the time that she's kidnapped, but I get a sense that her anger, I can, I, in my head, I see that her anger is kind of shifted to, um, you know, angry that he's kidnapped her to then the, after that point, it's this anger at herself for going along with him now. And she's kind of kicking herself. Like I had a moment I could have gotten away and I stayed, what was I thinking? But she still couldn't leave. And so I, I find it really interesting that looking at it that way, where she's just like angry at herself. It's like, what am I thinking? Why am I here? Mm-hmm. And I love that about this character. Yeah, I do too. That was that's a great transformational moment in the film. The 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 beating when she really you you sort of get your first sense that she is she's she's in it now. She's either part of the mystery or she's she is falling for him in some way, one way or another. She's she's in it, and uh, even when he is sucked back to the future, she's she's in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, these those are the three characters that really make up the the uh, bulk of the film. I don't know if Christopher Plummer. I mean, he's he's in it a couple of sequences well, and put in a cage. Yeah, he's hardly in it. I mean, it's it's great seeing him. This obviously became, uh, I think, from Amanda Plummer, his daughter, yeah. to him in this film, uh, became kind of a connection with Terry Gilliam as he ended up uh, as Doctor Parnassus in the yeah. Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus. Yeah. So um, clearly, uh, they uh, are people who enjoy working with each other. He and Terry, um, which is which is fantastic. Uh, but yeah, his role is really. Um, minor in this uh if there is a minor role that stands out for me it definitely is david morris because i think the scene where he releases the virus in the airport uh, under under you know duress really it's like he wasn't even planning on it 
that scene I feel is just I, I God, it's so tense. I, I get just like my stomach knots up every time he's about to open that and just like, oh man, here it comes. Just and, and because it's not only is he opening this virus to kind of spread it and start destroying the world, but also it's like a moment with him, within himself where he's like, this is it. I am di- I'm going to die now. This is my, I'm going to kill. This is how I die. And he, yeah. as he opens it, and it's like, I don't know. David Morris is a, I think he's an actor who has so much going, going on. Oh, he really does. I, you know, that, that sequence was, was incredible. And it, it's just sort of gut wrenching how he interacts with the, the uh, security agent at the gate. Um, even more so when he, you know, he has that, that conversation with uh, Jones, the insurance Mm-hmm. Uh, woman on the plane who we know from as the one of the doctors from the future and right. uh you i i don't know i mean am i alone that he already looks like he's starting to deteriorate i mean there has been some sense and as i read about it that people are saying well the the virus doesn't doesn't spread very quickly or else everybody in the hospital including cole uh you know would have may have have contracted it and been killed and you know if this was you know kind of uh, ground zero for this particular uh, virus. Why didn't you know what what happened next? Uh, but boy, when I look at him on the plane, he already looks. This is like five minutes into the future, and where he already looks sweaty and kind of. Well, am I alone in that? Does, or do you think well, it's just like stress flop sweat? Yeah, for me, it was like I, I've always looked at it like he's incredibly stressed out because he was just about killed you know he yeah. I mean, he was literally like running for his life just a moment before he got on the plane because those people were on to him and they were coming after him with a gun and or were going to try to gun him down and stop him from doing this and so that's what i always associate with kind of his nerves and hmm. you know hmm. well he was great um and and in that final sequence, as it, we we sort of wrap up the story, we we have just wrapped up David Cole's st- or, or uh, James Cole's story, and his life loop uh, thus begins again, mm-hmm. um, and then we wrap up the the tale as we assume and uh, that the insurance Jones is sort of the plan B, the backup plan uh, in case. Cole is unable to shoot uh, David Moore's character. Is that your sense? No, my sense is because he leaves that message in the airport so they know where he is. And, you know, the thing with time travel movies is once you've done something, it's like the people in the future, they've had plenty of time to figure all that out, and they can be right. there instantly. 39 just like, years. Right, just like his friend Jose, who is our, is right there with exactly. him. All of a sudden, he's just like, oh, you just left that message. You know, right. and, and, you left that message 39 years ago, and yet we, it was five right. minutes ago for you. Right. right, exactly. And so my sense is that they've kind of developed this whole plan, and, and they know that uh, that Cole ends up dying because, you know, Jose's there and everything. And so I, I assume that all their people oh. know, know what happened. And so now they've developed this plan where now she's she's like the next step to try to figure out, okay, so ah. I'm going I'm to go sit next to this guy on the plane. I'm going to completely avoid all of that, you know, the chaos in the airport, I'll just be on the plane ready to go so that I can get close to the man with the virus. Because all she really wants to do, all they want to do as, is, as, get as, the virus. Oops, is get the virus, right. I never, ever thought of that. That she, that w- the whole time the shootout is going on in the airport, she's not there. Right. 
that that she you know the last time this happened she wasn't there and that this is a new plan that's brilliant i like it even better now see now it just stepped up a star for you it did it always does (laughs) It always does. That's great. All right. Uh, let's talk just uh, about uh, Terry Gilliam. Yeah. Um, so this this was, a, you know, it's funny because right after Fisher King, this was a film uh, that he didn't jump into right away. I mean, as somebody who's going to do a finally, tale of two cities, he was going to do a scanner darkly. He was going to do a Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, Tale of Two Cities, Looney Tunes, Quasimodo, Tesla. He had all these projects lined up that he was going to try to do. And none of them took off, and and it took him a while before this you know brilliant script by David Webb Peoples and Janet Peoples, uh, based uh, or inspired by the the film La Jetée by Chris Marker, landed on his desk and became something that's like it piqued his curiosity, and he hadn't seen anything that good in a while, and it's like oh I should do this, and again, and the thing is this. You know, he found it very ironic that this was a universal film. The people who were behind Brazil and he had such problems with, who were now coming to him saying, "We want you to direct this film." And so, you know, it's just it's funny how how kind of the cycle of all this works. It's just like uh, you know, Colombia after uh, Baron Munchausen, they were the ones who ended up dealing with Fisher King. So, well, and it's so brilliant that after, you know, a- after Brazil had gone. Uh, after he'd been dealing with so many of those cost overruns, and then Universal comes to him as they're releasing Waterworld, right? <laughs> which is the <laughs> one of the legendarily over budget films. Oh yes, they kept pushing stuff over bu- overboard, right? You pushing know. film overboard, reels yeah. of film, reels of film. Yeah. <laughs> what a mess! What a mess that movie is. Uh, yeah. So, yes. So you know, I, and you know, Terry is a and they gave those... him final cut. Yeah, well, and he's 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 always fought for Final Cut. Like he has always fought for it. It's just it boils down to the rules that they give him that go along with that, and that's what caused the problems on Brazil because they gave him Final Cut, but only if it came in at uh, yeah. two hours and five minutes or whatever. And this one, you know, they gave him Final Cut, and I think they said it, you know, had to come in at two hours, and it came in at two hours and nine minutes with the credits so i i guess that was good enough so he got final cut on this one and you know this is a film you know he he often um says that the making of his films he ends up kind of adapting to his his uh lead character's psyche like in brazil you know he kind of became sam lowry dealing with the system and Mm -hmm. in, in baron munchausen he came became this guy who was just fighting against everything in the world and, and uh, you know, everything was collapsing. His, his the, the fantasies that he was creating were all collapsing. And in this one, he found himself kind of like this, this guy who couldn't keep anything straight as far as what he was in. And he's, he said he had a really hard time making this film because of all the different jumps in time and stuff. And he had to like, he, he would get himself confused on set trying to figure out, wait, 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 what point, which scene is this? Like trying to figure out, you know, at at which, which time was this 1996? Yeah. At what point? And, and he was getting very confused. So I found that funny that, uh, that he um, had that difficulty with this film and that he kind of takes that on. And, you know, I don't know. It's he's a guy, we've talked about his bad luck, but he does seem a guy who also just takes things on, you know? He, seemed, he like brings yeah. these things to himself by it's it's the secret. He must have read the secret before. <laughs> but but like skipped most of it. <laughs> right. 
what is your sense of how this, and I, you know, I, I don't want to derail it too much, but what is your sense of how this film uh, relates uh, to the Fisher King as the films that come after the trilogy of the imagination? Uh, you know, because last week we talked about how the Fisher King is sort of his first grown-up film, right? That this is this is him getting a chance to shed some of the more youthful uh, fantasy. Um, how how do you think that uh, applies here? Well, you know, he does say that these two films, this and Fisher King, were at least at the time were the two most enjoyable films for him to make. They were very easy to make. Everything went well. I mean, obviously, he had his issues and everything. But for the most part, comparatively, he felt that these films were just so easy. And I think it was a sign that um, he he was learning that the system wasn't necessarily out to get him. That if he found people that he could work with in the system who had the same kind of mindset as him, that he could succeed and he could tell really interesting stories. And, you know, there's an ease, I think, in these two films and kind of a more assured hand, I find, when I watch these films that just that feel these feel like um, films. uh, I mean, they all feel like they're made. They all feel like they're made by a confident filmmaker. But these two, um, I don't know, maybe it's just because kind of the Hollywoodness of them that, you know, they've got the Hollywood actors. They've kind of got, you know, the clearly the bigger budgets and everything. They feel a little more. Um, genre, perhaps, even though I, I still have a hard time classifying either of them just as a wholehearted genre film. Um, but I, I don't know. I feel like they do feel a little more. Um, gosh, I, again, I, I'm not quite sure what the word is. I don't yeah. know if it's assured. I don't know if it's uh, just confident. But they do feel uh, like a filmmaker who's just. Um, latches on to a really interesting story and and is able to kind of apply his magic to it while still staying very respectful to the the people who um, wrote the stories. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's the fact that these are scripts that Terry didn't write. Uh, and he is a he is a person who, as a writer, who uh, kind of a writer director, um, he he says, you know, if I'm I've written my own stuff, so I'm going to respect the writing that other people do. He doesn't just come in and rework the scripts. He's mm-hmm. one of those people like, you know, I think David Webb Peoples wrote Unforgiven, and he was, I think he's a very blessed writer. Clint Eastwood said when he went to make Unforgiven, he said, we're, this is the script we're going to make, warts and all. And he went out and made that script as it was. And Terry Gilliam did the same thing with this. He, he went out and said, okay, we're going to make this script. This is the script I want to tell. I don't want it to turn into a Terry Gilliam film. I want it to turn into a Terry Gilliam and David and Webb, David Webb Peoples and Janet Peoples film, something that is this world that we can all have been a part of. And maybe that's what it is, is that there's a sense of this world that isn't necessarily kind of from the manic mind of Terry Gilliam, uh, but it's a story that uh, somebody else brought to him that I, I, maybe these stories have a different vibe to them. Maybe that's what it is, is the stories just feel different, but they still have that Terry Gilliam touch to them. You know, that's an interesting observation that, that, you know, the, what I, what I was thinking about Terry Gilliam is that, you know, I get the sense uh, that his maturity as a filmmaker uh, has uh, allows him to, 
to make films that release some of the earlier Terry Gilliamness that that you know was so sort of quintessential fantasy, uh, quintessential production design that that equates to a Terry Gilliam film, uh, and and I think from moving from the Fisher King to this, uh, you see even less of what I would classify as Terry Gilliamness. Uh, you do whenever he has he's got that that whole sort of steampunk vibe that he he's sort of driving home in the production design, particularly in the future. Just the mess of tubes and pipes that we've talked about in the past, but but generally it's you know what we see in in terms of the way his he moves uh, he moves through a set uh, or moves through a space is you know he uses the camera and he uses lenses in certain ways that I think are really uh, definitively Terry Gilliam, but without a lot of the use, youthful sort of. Uh, abandon and exuberance that that we would have gotten um, had he made these films, uh, you know, without the experience of having maybe exercised those demons during the uh, you know time bandits Brazil and uh, phase. So that was my initial sense that this is just him growing older and maturing, uh, because I think with the exception of maybe the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus, I don't I, I don't get um, you know any of that similar fantasy i'm very curious about the zero theorem but i was just checking the zero theorem is is another film that he did not write um, right and and so you know maybe that's the connection that i've been searching for all along I, I don't know for me it's it's probably somewhere in the middle um i i like this film because i think it represents a uh, a mile marker in Terry Gilliam's development as a filmmaker, and more than many other filmmakers that I can think of, his development as a filmmaker is is obvious to me. Yeah, uh, and that's what makes it so much fun to compare this film to, say, Time Bandits, um, which you know, by comparison, is a, a clumsy romp through you know the British countryside, um, and I even I, I deeply enjoy that film, but I love watching where he's where he's come and where he is going. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I completely agree. I, well, and it's interesting that you say that. I I think this may be the last film that he's made that I really have loved. Um, I have found elements in films that he's done since that are interesting, but mm-hmm. nothing that I've been crazy about. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is, I mean, it's like seriously just being on a drug trip. Yeah, I, for me, in a good way. Yeah, I mean, in a good way, but it's yeah. not something that I've ever gone back and watched again. Um, the Brothers Grimm, I found, uh, yeah. you know, a little flat. Tideland is, I think, horrible. Tideland, I, I, mean, I haven't seen. It's it's a painful film to watch. I mean, I think it's a really interesting film to look at. It it uh, it pained me to watch it though. It was so hard to watch. Interestingly and the written by uh, Terry Gilliam. Uh, co-written, but it was based co-written. on a novel. Yeah, based on true. a novel. Um, and uh, and then uh, Dr. Parnassus, I, you know, I, I thought it was an interesting film. Obviously, it has a lot of uh, bad stuff that happened on that one yeah. um, with uh, Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger, yeah. But um, again, it's just like it, that one goes back to kind of the manic kind of or just kind of this, the craziness of what Terry Gilliam can do when he's unleashed. Yeah. And uh, note written by Terry Gilliam and Charles McCune. Right. Right. So okay, yeah, that's uh, yeah, a really interesting, interesting point. So well, I hope I, I hope I like Zero Theorem. 
you know, I, I do too. I, I'd, like, I, I'd like to have another Terry Gilliam film that I can really latch on to. I, I really agree with you. Um, I, I am, I'm very much looking forward to the film. I think the trailer looks incredible, and it's possible irrational exuberance. Yes, uh, it's, we'll, we'll see. I, you know, I've I've heard some me. bad reviews, so yeah. makes me make, makes me you know worry a little bit, but uh. we'll see. But I am. I, it does pique my curiosity that he has picked up the uh, the man who killed Don Quixote again after um, the uh, the whole trials and tribulations of that got made into that fantastic documentary Lost in La Mancha mm-hmm. when it didn't work the first time. So it's interesting to see him uh, actually getting people on board to fund it a second time. Yeah. Yes. Uh, what else did you learn uh, about your experience watching these films together? Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I, just that I think Terry Gilliam, his style is very clear. He, if there is a a director, um, who really, um, kind of fits with the whole auteur theory vibe, that's very obvious. I think it's him. I mean, he's got a very defined look that is very easy to pin on all of his films, whether it's the Dutch angles, or kind of the, the very wide angle lenses that he uses, uh, just the, how detailed he is in the shots. Um, that's something, a fun little story. I don't know if you watched the, the Hamster Factor, the great little documentary again about, uh, about the making of 12 Monkeys, but the whole, uh, it, it's on the, the DVD and the Blu-ray and stuff, and uh, it's a really fantastic documentary about just kind of the making of the film, um, and it's where he met the filmmakers who then went on to document his failed attempt at making his Don Quixote film. But um, the title of that film, I think, says a lot about Terry Gilliam. The Hamster Factor became, you know, somebody coined it when there was this shot. And I timed it when I watched it this time. It's a four-second shot, and it's a wide shot when Bruce Willis gets back from one of his early visits up to the surface where he's collecting stuff and he's sitting naked in his chair and he's injecting himself uh, with something. And it, it cuts from him injecting himself to a wide shot of this room that he's sitting in as, you know, kind of this, this very kind of sterile, dirty future world uh, that he's sitting in injecting himself with, I don't know, and uh, yeah. off off to the side is a hamster running in a wheel. And it's not something that you would probably even notice. I don't know if I've ever noticed it before, except for the fact that they talk about it in this documentary. This hamster, Terry Gilliam, latches on to details like he wanted that hamster to be running. And it took forever to get that shot because that hamster would not run. And they tried and tried and tried, and they kept doing the shot over and over again. And it was this problematic thing. And all it was is a four-second shot of Bruce Willis giving himself a shot, but that hamster had to be running. And I can imagine it being much easier now in the digital age when they can just digitally make the hamster run. But back then, they needed it to actually run, and it wouldn't. And that (laughs) became the defining thing about Terry Gilliam is this attention to these details that aren't necessarily the actors and their performances, but it's something within the frame that he has kind of taken upon as a mantle that it must be this way or I'm not moving forward because that's the detail that I want in this shot. And 
I've worked with directors like that where they latch on to something and it has to be that way. And it, it can work really well for a project. Um, although at the time, it can be one of the most aggravating things in the world because it's slowing things down. It's pushing the schedule behind. It's making people have to rearrange things and it's or potentially costing more with overtime and all that sort of thing. I mean, there's all it's like this snowball effect when things like that start happening. But when a director is, you know, still working within the budget, I mean, I everything I read ever since uh, um, Baron Munchausen, he's been very afraid of going over budget and has managed to contain it. As long as he's staying within the budget, yes, those things have to get reworked and it stresses people out, but the filmmaker gets what he wants and. In turn, you're getting this shot that you may never notice it, but if you catch it, there's this little detail of this hamster running there for four seconds, and it's just an extra detail that helps build this world. And we've talked about world building so often on this show. That's something that I really got out of watching all these Terry Gilliam films this time is just how effective he is as a filmmaker, not just creating that Terry Gilliam look of the film, but like with the shots and everything, the angles and all mm -hmm. that. But really making sure that these details that he wants in the film are there so that when we go back, there's always this fullness and this richness to everything in the film. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, you know, I don't, not to belabor the point, but I, I think that um, that level of, of detail is, um, it, you know, it, it's, it's wonderful uh, just to know that he notices uh, these things because there are there are many directors who don't and and those sorts of details are left up to you know building the the sequence and i think it's you know it's great to notice he knows he's also you know fun to read the the agony that he creates on sets and and you know we've talked about the <laughs> the wonderful quotes of people who say i love terry gilliam movies you know eric idol but the rule is never be in one uh it, you know it's um it, it's fun to watch those things play out um the uh, anybody else you want to talk about on the film itself as we uh, gear down here? Well, I, I think Roger Pratt we've talked about before with uh, in context of Terry Gilliam. He's uh, been with him on uh, a number of his films, and uh, he's back to work with him again here. And I think um, you know, I think the look of the film is just a solid look all the way through. I really enjoy the look of the future. I enjoy the look of the present. I think Roger Pratt clearly. Uh, no, they he and Terry Gilliam have been working with each other since the Monty Python days. I think they've got that that assured hand of working with each other, where they don't have to do a whole lot of communication to get things looking the way they want. And I think this film looks great. I mean, I, I think everything about it is just uh, is uh, beautiful in that Terry Gilliam way. Yes, yes, it yep. is. And. Uh, the, and, and production design, costume design, Julie Weiss, uh, production design, Jeffrey Beecroft, all of these people are fantastic. I think they do a great job. The interesting uh, uh, change up in this one is Paul Buckmaster at doing the music, who is somebody who I don't think I've ever heard of before. And I don't think he's somebody that uh, is really in the regular circles of, of movies you know, that you hear getting made and stuff. I mean, you look at his his... IMDb page, you know, once upon a time when we were colored, um, Peter Pan and the Pirates, uh, just a lot of not big things. Yeah. And so I don't know how this guy came to all of a sudden be the guy that they were bringing on to do uh, Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys, but he is. And 
you know, I think the music works uh, enough in context of the film. It's not something that's a, a that pleasurable of a listen outside of the film. But I think that he's created a theme for the film, like the, the opening credits with this kind of this this Argentine tango uh, vibe that I think works really well. It does. He found a, a a real lockstep with the visuals of the film. Like it, it, it the this is a Terry Gilliam film score, um, and and I don't necessarily mean that as a compliment. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it, but you're right that that main theme is great. The, though, as soon as it starts happening, you know, and, and we hear it, and we have Bruce Willis wandering around in the snow on the surface in the big condom bag, and and um, I, you know, I find myself, like, the music comes on, we hear that theme, and I, I immediately kind of jump out of the out of the scene a little bit. It's, it's, it's a bit stark for me, um, a, a bit sort of in, in an uncomfortable contrast to the tone of the film, but uh, that, that one theme in general, I think, is, is nice, um, but I can sort of see why he's well, not doing much else why he hasn't done a whole lot of other stuff but it, and uh, you know not just the opening i will say also that violin solo at the end i think is yeah, beautiful and nice. haunting and I, that's like the perfect way to to bring this film down and uh and end it and uh yeah i so I it, you're you, right yeah. it works perfectly in context of the yeah. film um anything else on your hot list you know, the only other thing that I wanted to mention is uh, the strangeness of the fact that they are making this 12 Monkeys TV show I'm now. I'm so glad you brought that up. That was the only thing on my list. Yeah. What I, do you think I, about that? I don't know, especially because it's essentially the same story. I mean, it's got James Cole. It's got uh, Dr. Rayleigh. It's yeah. just like, wow, they're going to just do the show, except they're just going to make it last for God only knows how many seasons. Yeah. Well, one. Yeah, I mean, let's be real. <laughs> uh, I, I'm I'm curious about it, um, but I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's something I'll kind of latch onto. If anything, I'm just I'm just really surprised that this is something that they decided to turn into a TV series. Yeah, yeah. I, I that was the thing that bowled me over too. That this, yeah, the, you know, I, I understand they're running out of things to make to remake, but this would be further down on the list for me. Yeah, um, especially I mean Terry Gilliam's created such this a, a world. I mean, even though it's going from a different uh, to a completely different medium, it's like still you're you're taking like a very well defined world that Terry Gilliam created. But you know what's what's easy about it when you look at even if you look at anything else Terry Gilliam's done, this is probably the easiest one to make a television show because there are three major characters and everybody else is a cheap extra. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like this, yeah. this is a film they can make in, you know, probably in Vancouver or, you know, Toronto and they can, uh, you know, they can do it cheap and it still, become... it, it'll be an interesting guard. And, and this is a, this is kind of the era we're in, right? I mean, this is, we're in the hot zone era again, right? We've got Ebola yeah. coming over. We, we've got Ebola hit the shores in Atlanta. We've got a massive crisis going on in, in Africa right now. And, uh, the other major Michael Bay produced, uh, I think it's on TNT, right? The last ship, uh, is, is uh, hunting down a virus. I mean, we need something. We, everybody needs a virus property to, to compete with. And this is, this is a good one yeah yeah it is it is and of course they take the good ones and latch onto it i wish they would take the bad ones and latch onto it and make something good out of them instead of redoing something with the good ones making it worse yeah i say we talk numbers (laughs) 
this film, like I said, it did really well for itself. It did uh, surprisingly this, well. Yeah, it did. Uh, it, you know, the budget was a little over $29 million, and uh, it domestically ended up making uh, about $57 million internationally, about almost $112 million. So, you know, all told, when you look at, when you adjust it down to profit per finished minute, it did uh, about $1.6 million per finished minute, making it, of the films we've talked about, the most uh, financially successful Terry Gilliam film when you look at adjusted profit per finished minute. 12 Monkeys, then Time Bandits, then, uh, oh no, yeah, 12 Monkeys, Time Bandits, Fisher King, Brazil, and then at the bottom of the heap uh, of all of our films is Baron Munchausen. That blows me away that this film did that well. Really? This was a great film. I remember when it came out. It was a huge buzz. I mean, I I saw it at least a couple times in the theaters. It was uh, just it was like number one at the box office for like a month straight at least. It was uh, it was a I big know. movie. I, you're right. I mean, I I remember, but I I'm just been watching it and just how I feel about it. Again, I love it. I love talking about it. I love the experience of watching it. I mostly because I love all the individual pieces on the screen. And yet we're going to hang up tonight, and I'm going to go to bed, and in the morning I'm going to forget that we had this conversation. No, I'm not going to forget about the conversation. I'm going to forget <laughs> the movie we talked about. I, I see. I, I feel like you say that just because it's convoluted, but I, you know, that's that's no. Kind it's of... not because I love. I yeah, I know. I know. I have the popcorn Pete nickname. Okay, I get it. But the whole <laughs> thing is, I do like to be challenged by film. I really, really do. I love teaching films that challenge people. I love these things. And this one, there's something about it I just can't connect with um, to that greater sense of of cinema uh, wonder. Like I just, I walk away from it and I'm done. Hmm. I well, I feel like I held my own in our conversation here, talking about time travel, talking about, it is complicated. Oh, yeah. I get it. I understand what's going on in the film. I just, I just don't connect with the, the, the whole narrative sure. uh, in a way that makes it, that, that really internalizes it for me. Well, let's see how it does in our rankings. Let's, then. Do it. Let's, for the crying out loud, head over to, uh, uh, where we go? Flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you can uh, catch up with our entire uh, stack rankings of our favorite films and see if they line up with yours. Is it going to crack the top uh, 50? Oh, there you go. Changing it up a little bit. Uh Uh All right. Well, 12 First of all, wait, before we do this, where is this on your personal flick chart? I, I don't know. I don't have it open. Uh, I have think... ours open. I know. I'm just saying. <laughs> All right, go ahead. I should have checked, but I'm sure it's uh, you know up there, probably in my top 200 or so. It's uh, Mine's in the top 200. It's 135 for me. Okay. All right, go ahead. Okay, 12 Monkeys or The Born Supremacy. I would do 12 Monkeys. Yeah, okay. All right, 12 Monkeys or... Das Boot. Das Boot. I would do 12 Monkeys uh, if for no other reason than it, it's so much faster to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love Das Boot, but boy, is it a long one. Because you only watch the 13 hour version of it? <laughs> um, okay, I'll give it to you. Okay, all right. 12 Monkeys or The World's End? the world's end yeah i think we'd both go the world's yeah. end 12 monkeys or Shaun of the dead 
I would go Shaun, Shaun of the, the Dead. Dead. All right, so we'll click on Shaun of the Dead, and oh, looks like that's it. We're at number 36. Wow. Well, that, I, you know, that feels pretty good, I guess. Yeah, it's in the top 50. It's in the top 50. It broke the top 50. Yeah. When did we, we knew it was going to break the top 50 probably with what? The first one, right? Or maybe the second one. Yeah. I think the second one would have gotten it in there because we're at it's it is um, gosh what was 144 that makes 144 on our flick chart so yeah. splitting that in half you know is uh, I don't even know 72 something right. like that yeah I guess Great I'm done I'm, I'm I'm done with uh, I'm t- certainly done with this where do we go next week we didn't even talk about that yeah we're going to uh, go a completely different direction. And uh, we're going to uh, jump into the Man With No Name trilogy. Quite excited about that. A little Sergio Leone, uh, Clint Eastwood action. I am too. I'm very excited about this. Oh, yeah. I can't believe it's taken us three years to talk about it. You know, I can't either. But this was, I think, one of those ones where we were, I think it was a little uh, daunting. To yes. Take them on, right? Well, I yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this one. This is a little bit off. Off kilter for where we have been for the last, last little while, so it'll be good to get into this, uh, into a little Leone. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, man, I'm out of here. Good talk. I gotta go to bed. I I see a spider crawling in my window. I'm gonna go eat it just in case. <laughs> Amazon. Who spoke? To, who spoke to you from from the Amazon this week? From the pool. From the pool. Uh, Cullen Cunningham oh. uh, actually wrote to me uh, and uh, a five star review, and uh, it says, "quote A Terry Gilliam project, unique storyline that I didn't understand when it came out and had rented it, then seen it again on cable commercial free fifteen years ago and still didn't get it. This time." I'd seen where it said story and directed by Terry Gilliam, then knew who and how to view it, and I finally got it. LOL. Uh, oh, my goodness. Oh, it's a Terry Gilliam Now film. I get it. I used the purple glasses. Uh, mine is not, uh, well, mine's not that much clearer. Dr. Kim's with, I assume, a silent H, X, (laughs) and Z uh, wrote this uh, just in March uh, 29th, 2013. How about this? They needed Bruce Willis. It was certainly good to see Frank Gorshin again. The young woman playing the psychiatrist was nice to look at. The Philadelphia Municipal Center, at least that's what it was when I lived in the city, aroused some pleasant memories for me. Let me see. Oh, yes. There were a few minutes of the recognition of love between the two leads, which had some appeal. What else? Nothing else. This is a variation on an ancient film plot in which nothing has been added, having visual, intellectual, or emotional appeal. No doubt Bruce Willis was paid an enormous sum to do what third-rate Broadway hack could have done as well for 5% or less of the salary and percentage cut that he commands. But the Bruce Willis name is about the only thing the film had to offer to draw in the general audience. If you are another of the washed masses, I would avoid this and pick up something entertaining. 
Oh, yes, Brad Pitt was also in it. Luster, it will not add to his resume. Wow. So there are a number of factual uh, issues wrong with that review, but mostly I'm just going to stick with the uh, his, his uh, cadence in that final paragraph and the fact that, you know, he pulled out washed masses. Gotta love that. I'm a washed mass. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022... We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>